0: But of course, while I'm touring, there are a bunch of people halfway across the world who are fleeing violence, and there's so much horrible news uh, today, and it seems like a stream of news every day. And so for that reason, it's just another reason for us to give a big shout out to the men and women keeping us safe here in the United States and people putting themselves in harm's way on our behalf. Big shout out to our armed forces on behalf of the men and women at Navy Federal Credit Union and us working to make podcasts in the basement. Let's all go. Be safe and stack some Benjamins.
1: Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Lift off. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor Doug, and uh, it's uh, National Napping Day. I'm going to make this quick because I have a hammock strung out over the boiler just waiting for me to catch some Z's during the headlines. Napping is part of my life design, but how much are you thinking about design in your life? Today, to help you incorporate better design into your financial plan, we welcome the author of Reimagining Design, Kevin Bethune. In our TikTok Minute, want to make $2.1 million quickly? We've got your answer and... In our headline segment, one company you wouldn't expect says financial planners might play a bigger role in your success than you think. Later, I'll share some of my sleepy trivia. And now, to you guys who are here to make sure you're not sleeping on your financial future, it's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G.
0: Happy Monday, everybody! Let me be the first one to welcome you. I am Joe Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. I'm coming to you live from Los Angeles, California, on remote location, as they say, but holding down the fort in the basement for another Monday, showing up for duty on time and ready to go, Mister OG.
2: That's my name. On time and under budget. That's my. Uh, that was my nickname in college.
0: <laughs> that was that was the deal. Uh, your your English professors called you that under budget? And my teammates, girlfriends, the whole thing. Everybody. Well, it's fantastic and glad that you're sticking with it. We got a great show today, OG, because we've got Kevin Bethune, who's an expert in design with us. And you might say to yourself, what does design have to do with financial planning? As you know. What does know, design have to do with financial planning? Right. <laughs> and as you know, it is, it is totally about how you design your life we're going to talk about keys when it comes to design with kevin but first we got a TikTok minute we got oh gee we got so much going on i can't wait but first this episode sponsored by state farm you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget well look no further than state farm you're going to get an extended 30-day free trial to try it out like I try out many different apps. And this one was sticky for me because, well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. All right, Kevin Bethune waiting upstairs. So let's get you your headline.
3: Hello, darlings. And now, it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking
1: Benjamins Headlines.
0: Our first piece today comes to us from Investment News. This is uh, written by Sean Aloka. Despite the hype, says the headline, future advice is hybrid. And I won't finish that sentence because it's going to kind of give away the people that wrote it. And I want to just talk about the piece first, OG. Frequent financial headlines is a quote in the piece. Frequent financial headlines may lead people to believe that human advisors are under threat from technology, wrote the advisors of a study, Jane Henshaw, head of investor behavior at Blank, and Paulo Costa, a behavioral economist at the company. In the last two years, the impact of COVID-19 has further affected face-to-face models. Despite the headlines about Wall Street's impending digital disruption, The survey of about 1,500 clients fielded in July showed that most investors really want human financial advisors. They want robo-advisors to step in and provide people with some of the -the behind-the-scenes stuff, OG, but the average person wants a human in their corner helping them make better financial decisions.
2: So the uh, last 10, 12, 15 years of technology where they say financial advisors are going away... You're never going to need it. That's been greatly exaggerated. The demise of financial advice has been greatly exaggerated. Is that the uh, the moral of that story? I think, you know, from an investment standpoint, technology has gotten way better. And that really helps, you know, it helps advisors spend more time doing the stuff that actually matters. I was thinking about this the other day. We were rebalancing some accounts for clients, and and I was thinking about how much of a pain in the butt it was. <laughs> Like having to go into this technology tool and and, and making sure everything matches up, like it took some time, but we did some 150, you know, rebalances in about an hour. Whereas Joe, I'm sure you remember back when you were a financial planner, which is one of your favorite phrases, you'd have to wait till you had that meeting, right? And then you'd print out an Excel worksheet and then you'd do the math and then you'd go in and you'd sell all these positions and then you'd wait for them to settle in three days. And then you'd go back in and buy the other things that you wanted to buy, and hopefully the math still worked, and nothing crazy happened. And now, yeah, it takes a little bit of time, but the amount of that has cut down. That transactional-type stuff, I think, is where technology excels, and advisors who use that are going to be much better off, because, or, and their clients are going to be better off because they can spend more time with their clients talking about the things that really matter.
0: I've been holding behind my back for a few minutes who wrote this study. Oh, gee, I think you know who wrote the study.
2: I don't. I actually didn't read it yet.
0: Investment management company Vanguard says that people want human financial advisors.
2: Makes sense. Since they sell financial advice. But again, you can look at like the most recent, you know, acquisition, right? Wealthfront going to UBS. You know, UBS didn't buy it because of their fantastic client-facing, you know, They bought the technology. They said, we want the technology that's going to do this thing so that our advisors can spend more time with clients. And I think that's probably the point that Vanguard has too.
0: Oh, yeah. This piece even says, wealth managers should consider automating their portfolio management services and bringing on robust technology to scale their business while saving time to strengthen their in-person relationships.
2: It's like I read the article.
0: Yes, right. Spend more time, which I didn't. <laughs> spend more time with your client and less time doing the math, like we we were just talking about.
2: I think our technology budget this year is more than one and a half times uh, an associate role compensation.
0: You underpay people, or or it's a lot. Which which point are you trying to trying to make? <laughs> which which point am I trying to make? <laughs> I'm I'm
2: making that technology is. Is big piece is expensive, but it's probably replacing three jobs. You know what I mean? Like it's, I I would bet it's a three to one multiplier. Doug's got some tech experience, so I so I bet he has some opinion
1: about that. And I would say, based on that metric you just gave, it's still woefully underfunded your tech budget. You should spend more money on tech. Absolutely, more money. Yes, on tech. Yeah, that's uh, alarming. We're going to have to have a chat after this. <laughs> OG,
2: <laughs> OG's only got so much money, Doug. You know,
0: <laughs> but you know, OG. You know, most people aren't worried about your tech budget. They're worried about. They're frustrated because you know Vanguard again publishes a piece saying that human advice is a key to success. A question that I've been getting on the road, got it again in San Diego the other day from our friend, stacker, Eric, I think, if I remember correctly, Eric asked the same question people have been asking, which is how do I find that person? Because as you know, so many people interview one person or maybe two people, they jump into a relationship. It's absolutely horrible. And then they go to the internet and they say, guess what? Financial planners suck." I'm just going to do this by myself, which doing it by yourself, you're smart enough to do this stuff by yourself, but it's not about that. That's the wrong question. The question is, am I unemotional about this? Have I dotted all my I's and crossed all my T's? And am I truly spending my time on the things that let me get ahead faster? And if I want to get ahead faster, not just with money, but with diet and everything else, I just surround myself with smart people. So how do I find them after that diatribe? <laughs>
2: <laughs> like, lot to unpack there. Um, I, I don't think that the you know I find somebody and they suck is so prevalent. I really don't. I mean, I think the problem is is that there's not a lot of people who do comprehensive financial planning. I mean, what are there like eighty thousand CFPS in the entire country, entire world? I don't. You know, it's some. Insignificant number relative well, to. If you're going to
0: say in the entire world, you might as well say the entire universe, because I'll bet if it's in the entire world, also, there's not more. There's also, the the, I, could, I could
2: just expand that bucket a little bit more. But <laughs> you talk about it in the tour stops that we've made together. Are we worried about saturation? And the answer is not even remotely close, right? Because all the finance people in the world maybe reach 20 million people and there's 300 million. 350 million Americans. And so that doesn't include- that includes include, all the
0: commission salespeople.
2: No, I'm saying, I'm talking about, no, no, I'm talking about, are we worried about there being the right amount of advice out there? And I don't think there's enough. I don't think there's enough financial planners. There's a right. lot of people who sell stuff. There's a lot of people who specialize in investment management or something, but there's not a ton, maybe 100,000, I don't know, that do comprehensive planning And you're right. I think the frustration is is that you want to have somebody who specializes in what you're dealing with. And then you also want to make sure that, that they're comprehensive in nature. I think the good news is that nowadays, there's a lot of resources that you can use to kind of screen those people down to find the person that matches. So while COVID was not great for client visits in person, we're still kind of coming out of that, you know, The good news is that it did open everybody's eyes to the fact that if the best advisor for you is in Portland, Oregon, and you're in San Antonio, Texas, you can hire that person. It's fantastic. If the best advisor for you is across the street, you can get them too, but you're not limited to geographically kind of where you are, or if you have some specialization or some specialty that you're needing particular advice in, there's probably someone out there who handles it, one of my good friends only works with optometrists who own their own business. You know, that's just what he's really good at. He knows a lot about that. So you're seeing more and more of that
0: these days as well. But I think that's a good question that you bring up for people. What type of people do you work with? Who do you work with? What types of people are your general client? Because you kind of want to fit whatever that person's mold is.
2: Absolutely. That's a very fair question that you should ask. You know as part of your kind of screening process like how do I look relative how do I as a client look to you relative to your other clients am I the wealthiest yeah. person you've got am I the poorest person you've got and I have three kids and all of your clients are single 20 year olds or are all of your client for 70 year old retirees and I'm 41 you know you want to have somebody who is working on the same thing a lot because when all you see is the same stuff over and over again, you get really good at how to handle problems of 44 year olds with three kids. That's
1: OG OG more important to ask about the financial profiles of their other client base or their professional profiles back to your point about specializing in a specific profession like optometry.
2: I think those things are going to be pretty similar. If your business is all optometrist business owners, they have something in common, right? right. Like their incomes are probably in the ballpark of being similar. Their net worth is in the ballpark of being similar. Are there wealthier optometrists than others? Of course there are. Are there ones who are just getting started? Sure. But I think those things kind of go hand in hand. You can get a sense of, you know, if you work with 30-year-old tech employees, they have a similar financial scenario going on, I would say then, as opposed to, you know, other, sure, other
1: but things. since that's not as common to bump into a, a financial planner who may be specializing in an area of profession or even your professional area, it seems like the most likely answer is going to be no. Nope, I, you know, I handle people from all you know professions, all walks of life. So then that leaves you with okay, how do I compare from a portfolio standpoint or income standpoint to your other clients? How do we know what are some questions we can ask to suss out if they're telling the truth? Like, they, I, Maybe I've got a huge portfolio and they really want me, but they know that they don't want to tell me I am their would be their biggest client because then that would tell me, maybe you don't know what you're doing. So how would I suss that out based on their answer?
2: Well, I mean, that would be an issue right away if you're, if you're an advisor and you're not telling clients the truth danger, Will Robinson.
1: Absolutely. So how do
2: I know? know. (laughs) But actually,
0: and I was going to address this because I addressed this in our question that we got at the stop in San Diego, that this is a hard part, Doug. This is a really hard part of the financial planning process. Just think about in your life how hard it is to find really good people that you match up well with, no matter what it is. This is not an area where there's a lot of shortcuts. It is, it is clearly the ground game of the entire process. But it's the, it's the part that if you have the fortitude to interview maybe 10 people, which sounds, it's, it's a ton of time and it's a lot of work. But if you've got the fortitude to do that, you're going to hear 10 different sales pitches. So you know where the sales pitches are and you're much more likely to hear when somebody's filling you full of junk. You know, if somebody's lying to you, your flag's going to go off much better than if you just interview one. And most people I met with, I don't know about you, OG, but most people I met with when I was a financial planner, they met with me and that was pretty much it. And they made a decision based on my, my pitch. And even though I thought I was a good planner, Every financial planner has to have a pitch. If I think that we're a good fit, I still got to sell you on working with me. So I would prefer that people heard a lot of different pitches so they knew kind of where, where different people specialize. You also learn what questions to ask. A great question I like is, what's a question I haven't asked you that I probably should have? And the advisor is going to feel a little heat to come up with something good on that one. And then you're going to find some good questions based on that answer as well, I think.
2: I don't know. I don't think you need to spend the time to go to ten different sales pitches, as you put it. I mean, you don't go to ten different car dealerships to try to figure out what kind of car you want to drive. You well, but that's because go I've
0: got True Car. I don't think that's an apples to apples comparison. No, my point is is that you can
2: you can do a lot of that digitally now. You can screen a lot of things all at one time digitally. To Doug's point, like how do I know screen if I'm, them
0: before the meeting?
2: Yeah, and kind of whittle it down. I mean, you don't have to go to 10 meetings. My God, that would be insane. You don't go to 10 different doctors. You, you, If you have a cancer diagnosis, you go to one other doctor, right? Maybe two. You don't go to 10. You know, I mean, nobody does that, so that's a little over the top. But I get what you're saying in that I think that the biggest match is whether or not you want to hang out with that person for the next 25 years. Like, And you know in a very short period of time whether or not – you're gonna get along with that person because that's oh, all that matters.
1: Then I really seriously need to reevaluate who my advisor is.
2: <laughs> I get it, but but to your point on on like how do you check that stuff out? All that's disclosed, right? So you can go online and you can pull up their how many clients they have and what their average client size is and all that sort of stuff. That's all that's all available online. So it'd be pretty foolish if you were an advisor to make those numbers up because it's you know
1: it's, yeah. So the, actually, you kind of just led me right to what my question was going to be. Can you advise people listening right now where to go to do some of that research?
2: Well, I think your final screening, if you will, is going to be to say, I got to do a little background. I have to look up their disclosure documents on the SEC website. I got to make sure that they're not wanted by the FBI for money laundering, like all that sort of stuff, just kind of, you know, and again, back to what Joe was saying earlier, or Doug, what you were saying, you don't even have to tell the truth on that. So, I mean... It's got to be a partnership that you feel like it's a partnership from day one. I think a good relationship with a client is one that we both look forward to having that conversation and neither one, neither person is looking at their calendar going, "Ah, oh, crap, I got to talk to OG again, <laughs> you know, or I'm not looking at it going, "Ah, oh, crap, I got to talk to Doug.
0: But I also think it can't be just about having great conversations. I also have to think it, it has to be somebody, at least for me, that I'm okay arguing with. And I'm going to believe them when they tell me that I'm wrong.
2: Yeah, I, I think all of that is true. That's a great conversation. It doesn't mean it's one-sided and it's all backslappy. I'm saying that true, right. it's got to yeah. be somebody that you can respect and that you want to hang out with for a long time. And if you find that person and they pass the sniff test on all the other disclosure stuff, then I think you found a good match, even if it happens to be on the first try.
0: This show is always the 101, and if uh, that's enough for you, then we're going to move on to the next segment. But if it's not, we send out the day after every show uh, a piece called The 201. It's our Stacking Benjamins newsletter where we go deeper. And Brooke Miller, who's also has been a financial planner before, dives into all these topics and gives you more resources, more stuff. You don't even have to listen to the episode to get stuff out of the 201. So stackingbenjamins.com slash 201. Is a great one two punch if you do listen to the show. But if you happen to miss one, still is also nice. And of course, it's free. And second, you can unsubscribe at any time. Coming up next, Kevin Bethune is, man, the stuff that this guy's done. And we're going to talk to him about his career because. For people that are thinking, maybe I'm in the wrong career, or maybe I'm not sure what I want to do, we got stuff here for you. If you're thinking about your financial plan and you're thinking about design and about how to design a better plan, we've got stuff for you. And if there's people out there not thinking about either of those things, but thinking about just how do I live a better, more fulfilled, well-rounded life, we've got stuff for you as well. Kevin's the founder and chief creative officer of Dreams, Design, and Life a Think Tank, Delivering design and innovation services using a human-centered approach. What does that mean? We're gonna dive into that as well. He's worked for many places that you've heard of. Nike being one of them. We'll ask him about his time at Nike. He was a nuclear, he was an engineer working at nuclear power plants. This guy's done everything. His book, his new book out, is from MIT Press and is called Reimagining Design. We'll talk to him in a second, but Doug, I think you got something for us first, my friend. Sure do, Joe. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Napping
1: gets a bad rap, especially in the U.S. Anytime after kindergarten, laying down in the middle of an afternoon means you don't have anything to do or that there's probably a lock on your office door. But I shan't be ashamed. In fact, science has found that naps are good for the brain, can promote memory, which is why I always remember to take my nap. See, it works So here's my question. According to science, how many hours after you wake up in the morning is the ideal time to take a nap? I'll be back right after a little two minute cat nap.
0: Well, you know what I think about Navy Federal? I think about the veterans that have done so much for our country. Navy Federal insured by NCUA, equalizing lender. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they can also be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. Oh, God. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right. U.S. Cellular, a company that sells phones, wants us to put down our phones and to see what we find. Learn more at uscellular.com slash built for us.
1: Hey there, stackers. I'm proud Catnapper and siesta maestro, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. According to experts, you don't want to nap too long. That's why after Joe's mom sings me to sleep with her ukulele twinkle twinkle little star, Joe keeps a close eye on the baby cam and wakes me up 25 minutes after I start snoring. So nice of him. Any longer and I might get groggy. According to science, I have to get that nap in before three, after which I could have trouble sleeping at night. So what's the best time to take a nap? Exactly the midpoint between the time you wake up in the morning and the time you go to bed. So do your own math and head for Siesta Key, my friends. Now, to keep you awake with riveting insights, we welcome the man
0: reimagining design, Kevin Bethune. And coming down the stairs to the basement, we're so happy he's here. Another Detroit guy, Kevin Bethune joins us. How are you? I'm doing well, Joe. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you because I love this idea of very thoughtful design. And your passion around design really comes from your background. And to start with, I think I want to just talk about you growing up. Where did you get passionate about the idea of design and creativity?
3: Where I was raised for the most part was uh, the Downriver Detroit metro area, which I know we're both familiar with. I have to credit my parents for being very creative, curious uh, souls. And that's the type of household that they uh, raised us in to always exploring even things beyond school i took an affinity to drawing at that early age and that's something my parents were encouraging me to keep doing we were constantly going on field trips to museums art museums just to get that exposure and i just wanted to draw more and more of the things that i saw at the same time any notion of like formal design felt like a thousand miles away and and, and as much as my my parents were sacrificing to you know, send their kids to what was hopefully a good college experience and just the, the monumental sacrifice that would entail designs was sort of under the guise of art. It's, it, it was too abstract to imagine that it could be a formal career path, especially as, as much sacrifices they were putting into uh, us kids and, and the potential for our education.
0: But you were still spurred on. You tell a story just briefly that I wanted to ask you about. I'm a big Disney fan, and you said you were inspired one time going to Epcot. How old were you when you went to Epcot? And uh, was it Test Track that you were got all geeked about?
3: <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Disney World was definitely a regular destination point. We would take the family car all the way down from Michigan to Florida because my grandparents were in Tallahassee. And so my parents liked to bolt on the Disney World trip on top of that usual uh, drive. It was Epcot Center, the GM World of Motion, sort of future mobility exhibit. Yeah. And all the cool concept cars, all the explorations that gave me more subject matter to draw, of course. So I became very fascinated with the idea of the future from that exhibit.
0: You then, uh, I had to laugh because you had told your dad at one point that you wanted to be an engineer. I grew up in Kalamazoo in farm country, Kevin. I no—I thought an engineer was just somebody that drove the train. But <laughs> I think for, for you, engineer still was kind of this nebulous thing. Why did you choose engineering to start off with?
3: I, I think because, especially because I was growing up in the heart of big auto, to your point. I mean, most of the neighbors worked for the big American car brands. And The majority of them were either working for those brands in a business capacity or an engineering capacity. Engineering at that time just felt like problem solving to comprehend how the world worked and help provide some ingenuity in terms of how things could be made in a manufacturing environment. That was my sense of engineering for my neighbors. And the fact that I could draw, I like math, I like science. So that collision felt like the most appropriate pragmatic step for my first career.
0: You 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 go to Notre Dame and you talk about how a trip to Notre Dame, which was not that far south of where I grew up, by the way, and I remember my first trip to Notre Dame's campus and just how I fell in love right away. But you were there, went into engineering at Notre Dame, and I love the fact that when you first got to Notre Dame, you struggle. Can you talk about that struggle? Because you say in the book that you really at an early age saw yourself as a role model for future black, future engineers, future college students. Like there were very few black people you said on campus at Notre Dame when you were there.
3: Yeah, I could definitely feel the difference between my course of learning in high school and making the big jump to college. Uh, Just the subject matter was different. I honestly think that in high school, and not, no disrespect to the school system that I sort of raised in, but at the same time, I think I could get the easy A just from sort of cursory memorization of material. And often the tests were just like regurgitation of that information. And that, I think that came rather easy. But when I got to college, you know, definitely there was a, a rigor that was part of Notre Dame's reputation. And it wasn't just enough to just know or, or memorize the material, you had to really understand it at a deep level, like second or third, three orders of degrees of depth of, of understanding. And that's how the tests, that's how the projects were sort of based on getting deep into the material. And compared to my peers, I definitely felt some inadequacies that I had to work on.
0: But then you decided when somebody told you, maybe this isn't for you, you decided, no, I've got to double down.
3: Yeah, no, it, you know, it wasn't easy in those early weeks to sort of look around and feel like I was the other. You know, I, w- I was someone that didn't look like the typical, you know, young person coming out of a prestigious private school or a charter school, I, and and especially with the inadequacies that I was uh, dealing with in those early grades and the challenge of that. But at the same time, I knew that I was curious about engineering. I I knew that the the subject matter, the laboratories. The things I saw the the, the upperclassmen doing (laughs) was quite intriguing. And to be told by a freshman advisor, you know what, I'm not sure engineering's for you because of this initial difficulty. I felt a little insulted by that, you know, versus seeking help and getting immediate assistance around areas where I could develop. Pinpointing that, it went to, I don't really see the fit for you on this path. And I thought, you know, the deep conviction inside said, I'm going to figure this out. I don't care what you say, I'm going to figure it out.
0: Well, and what's what's interesting, and people might wonder, why is this relevant? This is hugely relevant, I feel, to the little bit reading your book about your point of view. That understanding these different worlds and these different uh, th- th- these different disciplines is so important to good creativity and elevating design to the C-suite. You talk about really challenges us all to to say there are different points of view, and maybe I'm going to struggle, but the struggle is okay. Am I am I putting words into your mouth?
3: No, um, I think that's right. I definitely, after having taken such unique multidisciplinary leaps but to feel it sort of galvanize when i had some early runways uh, whether it was uh booze and company or or bcg providing the early band of misfits that we were a platform to really celebrate this idea of multidisciplinary collaboration and not having it be the exception but we were working in a way that it was like the rule for us to work in that way And to see the evidence that's created when you like lean into each other's disciplines, empathize with each other's realities. And that problem solving was not just something reserved to the strategist or someone that, you know, came from the most prestigious MBA program or management consulting firm that design could participate, technologists could participate. And then it's even more powerful if we band together and collaborate together. I think seeing that early evidence gave not only myself, but our, our early team, some tremendous courage to plow forward.
0: And just, just to give all of our, our stackers just an idea of the multidisciplinary approach that Kevin's had, and Kevin, the, the different things that you've been through before design. I mean, at one point, you were working on nuclear reactors. I mean, how do, how do you go from nuclear reactors to design?
3: <laughs> I'm still surprised when I reflect back on the, the path <laughs> of how, how weird it was. But I, I can say, hindsight being twenty twenty, that curiosity was a defining thread. You know, again, I started in engineering, a mechanical engineer coming out of Notre Dame, but it was the one industry among many, the nuclear industry, that was facing uh, what I would call a knowledge crisis. They hadn't hired young talent for the 10 to 15 years prior to me coming out of school. And so compared to, you know, going back to big auto or some other industry, there was a huge wide open door to learn and to transfer knowledge from the folks that were about to retire those folks that designed many of the world's nuclear power plants in the first place all that knowledge was going to leave the companies and so for me to come into that industry and and feel like i could get my hands on real engineering work early and often and almost get 10 years of great experiences in five in that type of situation I'm, i'm happy that i chose to run through that open door
0: A lot of people decide that they need business school. At some point, you decided to go to business school. Why make that transition from working in the nuclear field to to go to business school? You know, I think
3: there is a perception with engineering, whether people believe it's right, wrong or indifferent, that if you're a good technologist, a good engineer, you tend to get asked to do the same projects over and over again so the company can realize value from that expertise. But after a while, you start to just wonder, like, why is the company making certain choices? Why are projects being scoped and priced the way that they are? I and mean, I'm not a marketer. I, I I had no business courses going through undergrad. It was all you know, engineering oriented. And so, but I, I wanted a little bit more license for my career, a little bit more license to play in the big picture conversations versus just the technical stuff. And so that curiosity led me to realize that I lacked the business acumen and that Perhaps an MBA could help me garner that language for business.
0: But what I found very interesting was while you were there, that's when you started to draw again and get back into creativity. Like now I'm starting to see everything come together, the engineering side, the business side and the creativity side, really for you framing this thing, which when you've got your takeaways in first in the first chapter, your first takeaway is always stay curious And your second, I really want to dive into for a minute, if you don't mind. You write, invest some energy to explore what's possible. Experiments breed evidence to further inform your path. Like some people, when I was reading your first chapter of your book, I thought, this guy's on the long winding road, to quote the Beatles, (laughs) but it really has all come together in the future. And it's this idea that I don't have to be efficient, that I can go ahead and explore. And this will create some good stuff for me later.
3: No, absolutely. I think it definitely was that business school environment where I had the privilege of taking two years through graduate study to take a step back. I mean, yes, it was busy coursework and everything, but you still had a little bit room to just say, hey, what else is out there? And definitely when I think about like having to recommit my career to another company um, after the, the business school experience is done, I better, I better experiment now <laughs> versus trying to wait and when I'm in that next job. So thankfully, um, you know, I was at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh and, you know, I was definitely sort of hungering for just creativity, just to satiate it any way I could in the gaps between classes. And so I would design logos for student clubs or, or go, you know, do stuff with local uh, budding entrepreneurs in the Pittsburgh area, just whether it was painting tables for the restaurant or a mural for a nightclub or whatever, uh, those little creative exploits just helped me, feed that energy that I was longing for. And it ultimately made me decide, you know what, instead of just going to another engineering firm post-graduation, let me join an organization that has some creative components. No idea what I would do with that. I didn't understand it yet, but that was the yeah. the draw, the heartstrings.
0: Yeah. I think you just trust that it's going to come later, you know, that some of those lessons will come later. You went to Nike And we're working at Nike. You were introduced to a man, I think it's at Nike, James Maiden. Can you tell me about him and what you learned from James Maiden? Oh, actually, it's Jason Maiden. (laughs) Jason Maiden. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I got that. Oh, you know, it's funny. My note here even says Jason Maiden. (laughs) And I can't read my own notes, Kevin. But yeah, Jason.
3: (laughs) No worries. Yeah. So I think that volition to experiment from the business School environment, thankfully, carried into Nike, where... I started at Nike in, in a typical post-MBA job in a planning organization, but I was a product person at heart. I was a creatively curious person, not knowing anything about design yet. But, um, you know, Nike is a collegial culture where they value the idea of just having coffee with someone. And they, in turn, will introduce you to two more people to have coffee with. And so the chain continues. But when I met Jason through some mutuals, Jason was the first person... But he could tell I was curious about creativity. I was curious about design. So he literally, in a 45-minute conversation over coffee, just laid out the design landscape for me. And that was the first time I've heard it broken down the way he did. And literally, I was taking notes furiously. He was even showing me the ways that he practices sketching abilities. And it was just so cool to spend that time with him. And he's become such a you know lifelong friend ever since.
0: You realized, by the way, when you were at Nike, yeah, you write that you had this perception of this industry that these were kind of ballers on jet planes <laughs> living this super high life. And you found out in a hurry that that perception might be slightly skewed. <laughs>
3: Absolutely. As a business planner, I would see them walking into the building at 10 a.m. or whatever. And yeah, they were always jet setting to different locations around the world to get inspirations. Like, what are these inspiration trips? What are, What is that all about?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I think I'd want some of that too, right? <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, it wasn't
3: until I had a, a coffee chat turned into a stretch assignment and then had an opportunity to actually help the Jordan brand on a few briefs that didn't have enough designers to address them and under the mentorship of uh, Dwayne Edwards, who was the footwear design director at the time, I learned the hard way, like the hard work that was required to flesh out a design.
0: And it's wild because you write that that your average designer, I believe you said, was working on four designs at one time because there's a different one kind of for each season. So they're usually they have this rotation of four designs, not one thing. And they're involved in in lots of different areas of design. And you talk about this approach. And I think this is great for people listening, because like in financial planning or even in our financial lives, we have these experts sometimes that we work with. We might, we might have a financial planner. We might have a CPA. We might have an estate planning attorney or whatever, but we leave them separate. Or maybe we don't even have those people. Putting those minds together, I think, might have been the first. In your book reading, it sounded like the first time you saw all these people come together at once and really impact each other with this thing called the Nike triad model. Can you talk about how that works?
3: Sure. And you're absolutely right when you describe that, you know, a designer might be wrestling with four different projects at the same time across multiple seasons because the the product process could take anywhere from 12 to 24 months, depending on the innovation complexity of a given footwear model. Now, with that process, it's a long process because there's a lot of stakeholders that have to sort of vet out the fact that does that shoe design Deserve the right to be on the store shelf when it ultimately hits the retail marketplace. Uh, so there's a lot of gates and dates in the process. But to help stabilize a footwear project going through that process, Nike heavily invests in a, in a, in a triad model. It's like sort of like design is a team sport to, to bring to life a shoe. And that product marketing has to have an astute sense of the landscape of where shoe projects could be positioned the developer or footwear engineer has to have sort of a line of sight to how that concept is going to land at the factory and how difficult will the factory have it, you know, bringing together materials and methods to make that shoe function and come together and, and last and be durable, sustainable, all the things, and then design to be able to work with a brief and then flesh out a multitude of ideas. Also work with uh, athletes and consumers and bring latent insights front and center for the team to react to, um, and then to be able to articulate design intent and inform that in the form of technical packages that go over to offshore factory partners so that they know what to execute against and uh, how to refine prototypes as they get closer and closer to commercialization. So yeah, design is a team sport and the and Nike respect, and I'm very thankful that I had a chance to see that exposure play out.
0: I was just thinking that this largely informs the later piece of the book when you talk about what you do today. That most of your time, I feel like, Kevin, is getting rid of these silos and instead Mm -hmm. building these crosses, but cross bars, I suppose. You know, if I think of a barrel where we're all crossing over each other and we're kind of thinking through each other's eyes. In fact, you have a great analogy where you talk about coming out of a bright room. And there's a a sky full of stars there, but we initially don't see them. Like, it's not Mm. so much about trying to come up with stars, you know, design's not so much about coming up with stars as it is letting our eyes adjust and looking at the stuff that's already there in a different way.
3: I love that. Um, And the way you described it is spot on. Many times, unfortunately, we, as we navigate large enterprises, institutions, we don't spend enough time together together. And, and to look at a diverse array of, of different ingredients, whether it be data points, inspirations, insights, market references, and to allow a team some time to spend some time together to adjust their site and see the patterns and the potential constellations that are out there across all these different data points. That's creativity. When we sort of invest time, allow people the freedom to have that experience if we trust that, if we trust that process of allowing them to do that nine times out of 10, the team's going to come back with something. They're going to recognize the constellation in the stars.
0: I just earlier today, I'm going to pull the curtain back for people. I, I spoke with Celeste Headley from NPR about uh, do nothing. And people are going to hear that on the show here soon. But one thing that she talked about is we live now in this age of efficiency, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're working with a with a company, as you know better than me, it, it sounds hella inefficient to sit in some groups of these people from other departments and have this extended chat. Like, you know, our modern brain thinks about what's the cost of that time that we're spending just to get people on the same page. How do you work through that with, with the team?
3: Yeah. I think we have to sort of recognize what the work is. So to your point, the larger organizations get, you know, there definitely is a machine that is put together. It's rationalized people's roles get super specialized to make sure that that, that machine is running at it, its utmost efficiency, but I think we can also see, and we've experienced it over the last two to five years, the rate of change is becoming, you know, exponential, no longer linear exponential. And so we need to understand like for, for any organization that cares about, you know, hopefully sustainable, relevant growth, whatever those growth ambitions are, you have to invest in some muscle call it innovation that informs growth so that you can understand how to mature out some of the 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 machine that's going to become irrelevant just based on the nature of change and that you always have some bandwidth whether it's the same team doing it or a different team some bandwidth for multidisciplinary collaboration that will help you identify new sources of opportunity new sources of growth that will help keep your overall platform alive, relevant and running strong. So that's, you gotta, you gotta put some calories toward what I describe in the book.
0: Yeah. Well, and it feels like trusting the fact that these people are going to have insights right in front of you, like those stars that we didn't expect. And it's, I mean, based on your career, it happens over and over and over again. Like you have all this proof that it does work doing that. There's a great case study early in the book, which is about working with Starbucks. When you were working with Starbucks, I found this fantastic. Starbucks is trying to deliver a more um, human experience, a better experience. People feel good about spending $8 for a cup of coffee. <laughs> uh, how do, how, uh, talk about working with them because it sounds like before you, Kevin, they were talking about maybe using some out of the box solution and you convinced them maybe to dig a little deeper.
1: Yeah,
3: so at the time I was working with BCG Digital Ventures and uh, we had some outstanding uh, folks uh, working on that effort and I think Starbucks came to Digital Ventures with the thesis, how, you know, we want to invest in this machine learning sort of platform to drive feature state personalization for our services and you know, they they could have made a easy decision to go to some big bucks technology provider and and get off and running but I think through the relationship that our team had with them was really encouraging that multidisciplinary chemistry to have a little bit of time to percolate before they just went to a decision. And Starbucks, to their credit, was very concerned about the the ethical quandary that usually exists when it comes to data privacy. So you could get all the data you want to try to personalize someone's experience, but you can easily cross that line and enter that creepy territory and actually... Potentially erode the the Starbucks brand
0: by creating a harmful experience if you're not careful. So sure, I think what you're talking about is if I pull up at the drive-through or I get to the register and the person's telling me what I'm going to order because I usually (laughs) order it. It comes. It could come across as very creepy.
3: Yeah, it's like I got your egg sandwich already ready for you. Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a fine line there, and we had some talented team members that helped us understand the rubrics of balancing. Progressive disclosure, trust, and privacy. And I think collectively across BCG, Digital Ventures, Starbucks, we allowed some runway for our designers to go in there and and ruminate and and co-create and spend time with baristas, spend time with restaurant chain owners. And they came away with some some really helpful guiding principles to guide where Starbucks chose to invest their technology dollars.
0: Boy, and you look now at some of the things that you talked about in this case study, you know, a meaningful rewards program that people like people see the value in investing money into that rewards program. And by the way, Cheryl, my spouse is always refilling hers and the star program is very intuitive and easy to find out. So you clearly use this interdisciplinary team approach to look at that, but you didn't stop there. You took interdisciplinary to the, to the people that work at Starbucks. I mean, you thought not just about the end customer, but how do we make the barista like like working there more and the restaurant manager as well? Talk about that because that was really surprising to me to see you go to level two and level three with the people working at Starbucks.
3: Yeah, definitely a, a creative approach with any opportunity like the Starbucks one is that usually the problem solving never, never is isolated to the end customer in any value chain or any ecology of potential experience. We wanted to sort of suss out or distill the value criteria for each of the constituents in the ecology that we were entering. You know, in this case, it was, you know, not only the barista, but it was the restaurant chain manager. And then you could all argue that there's enterprise folks on the Starbucks side. And then there's even stakeholders outside of Starbucks company walls that we need to acknowledge and consider. Like, what do they care about? Maybe it's sustainability, maybe it's ethics, maybe it's corporate responsibility, community building, Like for any innovation project, we try to bring that stakeholder mindset front and center. Not only when I was at Digital Ventures, but also in the work I do now with Dreams Design Life.
0: Boy, there's so many takeaways in your book about creating your own future. We didn't get to that, about dreaming about future possibilities, about all the work you do. The book is called Reimagining Design, and Kevin, it's available tomorrow everywhere. Awesome. Thank you all for your support. Yeah, thanks a ton, by the way, for talking about design. I think this is so important in, well, in personal finance, in in our jobs, and our work. I don't think we think about design enough and about how better design just makes our whole life better. So thanks for your time. I really appreciate it.
3: Oh, thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm Jen from the Frugal Friends podcast. And when I'm not cutting the end of the toothpaste tube off to get that last little bit of toothpaste, I'm stacking Benjamins. Big thanks to kevin for hanging out with us you know og this idea that having different careers and not focusing on one thing is a mistake i love kevin's approach so much more you have to have you have to have and you'll have better design if you have experience in a lot of different areas i mean his time his time working as, as an engineer his time working in nuclear power his time designing shoes like all these different things really helps him bring together a lot of different things to make a good plan. And I think it's great for your financial plan to have a lot of life experience.
2: Well, and you have to recognize that all the different parts of your financial plan work together. So just like your experiences work together to kind of craft out who you are. So all the different parts of your financial plan work together to kind of move everything in the right direction.
0: And the fact that he gets all of the the different pieces together right from the beginning, I think is super important. I think we tend to be myopic and we we look at just one, one piece of the plan where if we look at all the different pieces of our plan at the same time and dovetail them like he did when they were helping Starbucks create their star thing. It, it, and I was serious when I talked to him. Cheryl loves the Starbucks reward program. It's easy to use. She always is able to easily figure out if she has more stars, if she's got a free drink, she gets excited when she does it like that program works because they got everybody involved and made sure that it was there, which brings up, OG a lot of people and not not a lot of people, but I've met these people that keep their advisors separate and they want the advisors to fight it out. I'll tell you right now, that's a horrible thing. You need your advisors to talk to each other.
2: Yeah, absolutely. How else are you going to have everything work together?
0: Yeah, Agreed. Hey, guess what? I got so excited about that conversation about advisors. I forgot the TikTok Minute. So excited about not only Kevin, but talking financial planners. Time for our belated TikTok Minute. This is the part of the show where we find a TikTok influencer who's either saying something brilliant or maybe it's iRoll roll brilliant. O oh, g, which one is it today? Is it brilliance or eye roll brilliance? Brilliance. Our friend Jordan found this. And uh, send it to us. Uh, let's. See. This is how. This is how one guy made 2.1 million dollars in three years. Check this out.
1: Here's how I made
2: 2.1 million dollars in just three years. First, I bought 2,000 koi fish wholesale. After three years, the koi's value increases tenfold. And you may be thinking that's not two million dollars. But here's the best part.
1: I jump in front of a city bus, file a class action lawsuit, make the rest of the bank there. Plus all the koi sammies I want. But follow and subscribe for more money hack guru.
0: You just, all you do, you get 2000 koi fish, they go up in value, but then you jump in front of a city bus and, and file a lawsuit. Oh gee, what's, what could be wrong with that?
2: I don't don't even know what to say. Waste of energy. (laughs) (laughs) Next topic, please, sir. Are
1: you punking us right now? (laughs) Is this worth us
0: talking about? It's It's absolute brilliance. Absolute brilliance. Thanks for that, Jordan. You got a TikTok minute for us, Stacky Uh no. no. Email me. What am I talking about? Joe at StackyBenjamins.com. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of Life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, Doug, they put what you value first.
1: Uh <laughs> pulling up to the car wash and everyone comes out to ogle the El Camino and then somebody offers to pay for a deluxe wash and buy me air fresheners just because my whip looks so hella. Is it ogle or oogle? Ogle? I think that depends on what part of your country you're from. All I care about is that I get a free car wash and air fresheners. (laughs)
0: Does (laughs) Does Haven care about that too, Joe? Is that what you're telling me? What they care about is that you have more time to focus on that because you're not focused on your life insurance. You know why, Doug? Because their application is simple. It's online. You get an instant coverage decision. They have affordable prices and all their policies are issued by their parent company, Mass Mutual, a more than 160-year-old insurer. Today's question was a question that we got in our 201 newsletter. Again, com slash 201. Brooke there does some interactive, interactive uh, questions. And today... You know what? We'd like you to help us by answering this question. How about this? Haven Lifeline, we're not even throwing it out. We're asking you another question. Meta. Uh, Do you turn off your work phone during vacation, or are you expected to be available 24-7?
2: No. That's why we have a team, because uh, free days are sacred for us. We think that uh, you got to have Lots of energy to do all the great work that we do. So when you're on free days, you're on free days. So do not check your email on free days. But make sure that other people are aware of it and um, make sure you're covered, you know. But um, we don't check email on free days or voicemail or anything like
0: that. The 24-7 stuff, man, it is tough. When people have those careers where they're expected to be there 24-7, that's a tough gig, OG.
2: I guess some things, right? Like a physician or something, if you're on call, you know, that sort of thing. Like, that's just kind of what
0: you signed up for, I suppose. But I do feel like there's some jobs where the boss wants you on call 24-7 and there's no need for it. I mean, there truly is no need for it.
1: Well, even worse than that are the company cultures that sort of espouse what OG just said, but don't actually put it in practice. So even though it's, hey, you know, it's nine o'clock, I expect you to be with your family, but you're getting an email or a text from your leader asking you a question, you feel obligated to answer it. And of course they're going to say the next day, oh, no, 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 I just need, it was on my mind and I needed to get it out there. You you could have waited till today, but you know, you just feel like, man, I better answer that. That's more of a, maybe your personal culture. It's hard to hold the line on that on your personal culture to not answer that email you get at nine or 10 o'clock at night.
2: Well, the sneaky way to deal with that is you answer it so that you can, kind of sleep easy, so to speak, but you set the email to get sent out later.
0: Yeah. I think, I think if you're a leader and you're not doing that and you're hoping that people answer your text at home, you know, the next morning, uh, use a little technology because you're applying pressure where maybe there doesn't need to be any, I don't know. What do you think about that?
1: OG, you were saying the way to handle that as the leader is to send the thought, but set up to send it on a delay.
2: Yeah, you, or or the other way too. Or if you're replying, you can reply so that it like clears your soul yeah.
1: <laughs> or set it out at like four AM. Yeah, but my point is you don't, as the answerer, you do not want to do that. Because that's just encouraging that behavior. So I think it's more incumbent on the leader to set it I know that that's out what I'm
2: saying. On delay. Be passive aggressive and set it out to send out at seven in the morning or if you want to, send it out at like 2.30 in the morning so that they always think like, oh my gosh, this dude's really working hard.
0: <laughs> what are your thoughts on this? Send me an email, joe at com. Love to circle back with this. And this is, uh, by the way, the kind of questions that we ask at the bottom of uh, each 201. All right. Time for us to head out. I will be coming to a city near you, stackingbenjamins.com slash stacked. OG, you are holding down the fort along with Doug. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks so much for doing the chores while I'm away. But if you're somebody that needs better help in your corner and you're going through that exercise right now of looking for a financial planner, doing a better job with your design, stackingbeduments.com slash OG is the link to he and his team's schedule. And then you can begin diving in on maybe dreaming bigger. All right, that's going to do it for today. Doug, you got it from here, my friend. What should we have learned today
1: so what should we have learned today first remember to keep learning across fields in the same way studying calligraphy helps steve jobs design the interface on the mac you never know how your varying skills might come together second if you're searching for an advisor do some research do some interviews and make sure there's someone you look forward to having conversations with for the next 25 years but the big lesson be proud of your nap, mat. That midday drool is cool. And if all else fails, you can always pretend you're in an important meeting. That's what I do. Thanks so much to Kevin Bethune for joining us today. His book, Reimagining Design, is available anywhere you imagine it might be. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2022, and is created by Joe High. Our producer is Karen Repine. The show is written by the brilliant Paulette Perhatch with help from Joe, me, and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. After you listen to our show, check out the 201 Deep Dives written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. You'll find the 411 on all things money at the 201. Just go to stackingbenjamins.com slash 201. Once we bottle up all this goodness, we ship it to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart. Steve helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to chat with friends about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is our social media coordinator and the room mother in our Facebook group called The Basement. So say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. Both she and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. To join all the basement fun with other stackers, type stackingbenjamins.com slash basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we'll see you next time back here at the Stacking Benjamin Show. Not only should you not take advice from these dorks, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, speak with a real financial advisor.
3: So
2: I think that um, since Joe is out gallivanting around the country, you and I get to do the uh, after show on our own. Oh,
1: The possibilities are endless. We've been
2: waiting for this for roughly 1,106 episodes, but who's counting?
1: I was not prepared. I didn't know this was coming. I could have come up with a whole list of illicit topics that were normally banned by Joe, won't let us talk about. We're going to probably end up talking about something boring like, I don't know, hair care products, a movie, something dumb, a movie. (laughs) Do you like watching soccer? That's an excellent question. Cause I used to poo poo it as they say, as an American sports fan, cause you're, we're like, we're brought up that we're supposed to, it's not a real sport. And there's, you know, there's no contact. And then I started watching it. I'm like, Holy cow. There is a ton of contact. It's, constantly moving tons of excitement and a lot of times just as much scoring as there is in a baseball game or a football game, you know, pick the sport. There's plenty of hockey games that end in a, you know, three to one. So yeah, I completely, uh, appreciate it now and and think it's a great, great thing to watch.
2: I've had occasion to watch two soccer. Are they matches? I guess they're matches, right? They're matches. Soccer matches in the last two weeks, uh, at the high school level, and it appears to be a smidge better than my five-year-old soccer team. Just a touch. Wherein they just kick the ball. Like, I am not smart enough in soccer to understand any plays that are going on. So I just see I just see chaos with the ball getting kicked around randomly. And, uh, and that frustrates me. Because it seems like just grown-up five-year-olds kicking the ball around. Because that's how my daughter does it, right? Like, they just run and kick it, and they don't even care.
1: But you're saying that that's all you see. You see the same thing at the high school level.
2: Well, that's what my untrained eye, who does not have such a discerning palette of soccer as you sees, <laughs> right? Sees an amoeba of things happening. I'm sure there's a lot of movement intentionally on there. But yeah, I just I uh, I can't I can't do
1: it. <laughs> really, <laughs> it's, you don't like? I wonder if it's because you know, it it never stops. So it's hard to see a play start with intention because it's all, the ball's always moving. It doesn't look as obvious that, Oh, they're running a specific play right now. Yeah. 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 Uh, But at the high school level, at least you must see that, they're way more spread out. You've got guys, or people, I should say, playing their positions. And Yeah, there looks to be a passing. lot of lazy
2: kids in the back just standing around doing nothing.
1: Lazy kids? Like, who's that guy standing near the fishnet? <laughs> exactly. What's he doing?
2: <laughs> He's not doing anything. He doesn't need- Get in there, buddy! And why have you got a different shirt on? Didn't you know they were wearing white today? Get the white jerseys and you brought your stupid yellow one. That's dumb.
1: <laughs> He's always cold. He's wearing those big gloves. old
2: Mickey mouse gloves. Like <laughs> it's not that cold for crying out loud, you know, but yeah, he just hangs out there. That's uh, pretty frustrating to watch, but, uh, my kids, team, not my, not my kid, my kid's school's team is, uh, they're playing in state championship today. So we've got it on TV, which is kind of fun, but, um, Still, just kind of scrolling on my phone while it's going on. I just listen for the for the announcer to just pick up his tempo of his voice, and then I'll look up and go, "Oh, there's like a whole bunch of kids standing around the goal, kicking it around, and no oh, one kicked 20 it twenty yards, and then one kicked it way, happen. way down there." Okay, yeah. we'll wait for everything, you know. But uh, I'm sure there's much more. Some people are going to write in and be like, "Dude, you don't understand." I I'm saying that. I'm saying that I yeah. don't understand it. So.
1: Take a breath, angry listener. He's saying he's an idiot about soccer. I'm an idiot about soccer. I was just just wondering if you
2: you happen to like it.
1: I agree. I don't. I also don't know because I didn't grow up playing it beyond whatever fourth grade. But so I don't understand always what I'm watching. I'm just saying, as a fan of athletics, as a fan of sports, oh, yeah, they're
2: definitely athletic kids. I mean, yeah. They, I, I, mean, I appreciate it. I could probably lose 30 pounds if I joined an adult soccer team, because all you do is run.
1: No, because there's <laughs> so much beer afterwards. You oh. would gain weight. I
2: don't, I don't know.
1: Because you don't drink beer.
2: Not a ton. No, I try right. not to. It's bad for you.
1: Passing up on all those good carbs.
2: <laughs> Free ones. I drink mine in little, little increments of three and four fingers. Right. Okay.
1: <laughs> Should we edit that out? <laughs>
2: Talking about bourbon. Obviously. Oh, I see.
1: All right, yeah. So there's another topic. Does the the two, three, four finger thing when you're pouring a drink. Is that pre ice or after ice? Definitely pre pre ice. Right, because now people are using these giant cubes that barely fit in the glass, and it looks like they're filling the glass up to nearly the rim.
2: Also, that's true. And you're
1: getting half of that in water eventually. I have an yeah. issue with the big ice cube.
2: I can tell. Because yeah. well, you and I talked about this. I want to get the uh, the big ice press, and you can't see the logic in it. Notwithstanding, $1,500 No, I, the $1, no, $1, I understand fee why
1: either. that. You know, when you highly compress that, and there's less air in the ice, it doesn't melt as fast, and so it's you know it's less water in your drink. I get all of that. It's the price. It's the price for the return. I have an issue with. Okay, I don't know. It might be good ice.
2: I, th- I feel like I feel like we should go halvesies, and I should test it for you. And then let you know.
1: <laughs> and then what? You're going to ship me a cube? <laughs> He's going to ship me a used cube. Yeah, look, it works, Doug.
2: <laughs> I think you're saying ship with a P. Just to just to be clear for the for the clean rating we still maintain on on uh, iTunes. But um, yes, uh, I would be happy to put it, pack it in some dry ice and. And or, I mean, just think about how great it would be.
1: God, the after show really is better without (laughs) Joe.
3: I agree. I got to go do some real work, though. See ya. They
0: won't go home, OG. Who's not going home? Maybe they're, maybe they're disturbed after that horrible, horrible story we told just a minute ago. But uh, no. Our listeners th- won't go home. Is that who you're saying won't leave? Both. Both listeners still here. Both what, listeners. What are we going to do? You know what's difficult, by the way? Making podcasts and managing your money at the same time. Like we spend so much time. It is super early as we're recording this. How do you find time to do this and manage your money, OG?
2: I have somebody else do it for me. <laughs> Perfect.
0: <laughs> I just delegate it. Well, you know who you can delegate it to? Navy federal credit union can take the legwork out of your saving and investing. Mm-hmm. You ever think about I that? See? Boom. Because OG already knows they offer multiple savings products and investing options to help you get closer to your financial goals. And you can put your money to work by automating your savings and investments. Automation is the key. That's why OG has people even put his slippers on for him. He automates that process. <laughs> Chop, chop. Slippers. Yes. Look at that. Man, that is fast. And they offer educational resources to help guide your decisions. Learn more at NavyFederal.org slash save and invest. That's NavyFederal.org slash save and invest. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment options are available through Navy Federal Investment Services that are not insured by NCUA. All right, guys. Seriously, let's go well- home. All he does is put his slippers on top of the Roomba
1: and wait for it to show up when it, when it does the office.
0: Presses the Roomba button to get yeah. over here. Don't, don't be too impressed. Don't give away the all the secrets. It's, a, it's an audio podcast, Doug. Come on. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month and I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do of their military appreciation month offers and other Navy Federal offers Navy Federal's insured by NCUA equal housing lender